0: Welcome to M-DASH, the healthcare podcast that gives you pause. I'm Kim Aquaviva. Today's episode, Unicorns, featuring Claire Rudy Foster. Hello, welcome to M-DASH. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. Thank you for having me here today.
0: Oh, you're welcome. So I want to start by having you introduce yourself. What name do you want to be called? What pronouns do you use? And what do you want listeners to know about you?
1: My name is Claire Rudy Foster. I go by Foster, which is my last name. My pronouns are he and they, and I am the author of Shine of the Ever, which is a short story collection that came out at the end of 2019. I am also a ghostwriter. I write essays. I've been on NPR in the New York Times, the Washington Post, you name it, I've done it. <laughs> You're a superstar. I guess I am. I'm, I'm the greatest writer you've never heard of. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome.
0: And what identities do you want to share with listeners?
1: Oh my gosh. Um, I'm a queer, non-binary, trans, single parent. Um, I'm also a person in long-term recovery from heroin addiction and alcoholism. I'm a uh, very white. (laughs) I live in Portland, Oregon, one of the whitest uh, cities in America. And, um, and I, you know, I'm getting along. (laughs) I was going to ask, how are, how are things going for you with the pandemic? The pandemic, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I've been a freelance full-time writer for a couple of years now, and um, it's been interesting seeing how the pandemic has put everybody else. I feel like everybody else is suddenly on my timeline, you know, like interesting. I mean, when when you're a freelancer, like unless for me anyway, like unless I have a meeting or an event or some, you know, commitment to another person, I don't have to be anywhere. You know, I wake up, I wear my jammies, I work all day, you know, at some point I eat, at some point I sleep, you know, time is very (laughs) fluid for me um and i feel like i feel like it's it's been interesting watching other people adapt to the same fluidity of time um it's been very hard in some ways um i think what's been hardest for me is seeing how the people i care about have struggled with this um you know we we have new limitations um I'm extremely fortunate to be more or less comfortable with being alone for long periods of time and you know communicating remotely for the most part but um you know I miss travel um, I'm really lucky that that's my biggest concern today is that i miss <laughs> I miss getting on a plane um, and you know it's it's been a good opportunity for me to really um, use my skills, especially in my recovery community and with my neighbors. I've gotten really involved with mutual aid stuff, um, food boxes, uh, organizing. Rent strike has been a huge issue for me. I jumped on that at the end of you know February, early March. And um, it's been good to find something that feels like a purpose.
0: Hmm. Well, and I imagine right now, I mean, you showed that you're part of the recovery community. I can imagine right now would be a really isolating time for folks who are in recovery, um, who are used to people who found comfort in going to meetings and found support in physically going to meetings. Um, I can imagine that this would be a shift in particular for those folks, I th- you know, to not be able to see their, their recovery community face-to-face?
1: I think it, it is and it's not. Um, for me, you know, I'm very lucky to be part of a community that is well-established. Um, the infrastructure is there. And although I think for some people, you know, isolation is part of the disease of addiction, feeling lonely, feeling left out, Um, I know that for me, when I was at the height of my addiction, I did not see other people. I didn't leave the house, and so I I assume that for some people, that that experience is very triggering. But I can literally talk to another person in recovery anytime I touch my phone. You know, I—that's fantastic. You know what I mean? Like, there's a directory of meetings for people that are—it's twenty-four-seven around the globe, around the clock. You know. I, I don't feel, I certainly feel isolated, but I don't feel lonely in my isolation. And I think that that that's fantastic. Yeah. And I've also, you know, I've got some people in my life who are just now, um, entering recovery, you know, and they, they've told me that in some ways the pandemic is making it easier because they can't go to a bar. Oh,
0: interesting. That makes sense. Their
1: dealer does not make house calls. (laughs) 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 So I just, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to be where I am with that. Um, I think that my idea of hell is being alone in my apartment with, uh, you know, with a bottle and a needle. Um, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I have a friend, she's, you know, ancient. She got sober on the East coast in like the seventies or something like that. She always says, when you are home alone, you are home with a killer. <laughs> oh, wow. That's powerful, though. Great. Uh, and I feel that, you know, but when I'm here, you know, when I'm sheltering in place or whatever, like I'm not alone. I have a I have a lively community of people who are literally, you know, a phone call away and I'm, I don't hmm. hear the phone.
0: It's been interesting watching, you know, as I watch things on social media and Twitter and Instagram and... Um, and even within just colleagues and friends, you know, people will be talking about getting together and there's so much of this like zoom happy hour stuff mm-hmm. and, and I don't drink. And my wife was in recovery for God, uh, 18 years oh, when wow. she died. And so, um, you know, the pandemic has made me realize now more than ever, how much of people's coping is so much organized around alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, so I, I can imagine that that would be kind of distressing to it's, to see if someone weren't solid in their
1: recovery. At this yeah, moment. I mean, just, I, I don't have an issue with casual drinking. You know, what somebody else does is their own business. Sure. Um, I think what's weird for social media, for me, what's weird to see is um, that it's 24-7 happy hour now. Mm-hmm. You know, prior to covid it was, pre- I mean, you know, around three or four, you'd start seeing people on the East Coast, for example. You know, you start to see the cocktails pop up or, mm-hmm. you know, people talking about going out. And now it's like, as I said, you know, with the fluidity of time, if there is no day and night yeah. <laughs> and you don't have to be anywhere, I mean, people are, you know, day drinking has become normal on my time. Yeah. And- I'm like, well, I don't judge you, um, I'm a little concerned, but it's also none of my business. Sure. And so I've just been very proactive about muting that stuff because frankly, I don't want to see your cocktails. Yeah. I don't I'm with want you. to see that. It's not appealing to me. And um, you know, I, I don't I assume it's different in the healthcare community, but if you are a creative person and you know, like me, like if you're a writer, it's sort of expected that you drink. Mm -hmm. or that you use other substances. And those assumptions and that stereotype was very, very harmful to me when I was younger. So I don't, you know, I'm at a place where I just don't interact with that kind of content. You know, if someone has some news to share and they follow it up with, and I'm celebrating with a drink, I don't click on that. I don't interact with it at all. I've been really, really free with my mute button. And it's uh, it's been great, actually. <laughs> the mute button is awesome. I it is a permit. powerful tool. <laughs> we have a yeah, great relationship.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I try not to do much blocking on social media um, because I don't want to, I don't want to eliminate my ability to interact with folks. But if mm-hmm. I feel like there's, sometimes I'll and I've done this periodically where I'll do like block someone for a day uh-huh. because I need space. It's like, yeah. I just need space for a day. Um, and then I'll unblock. Uh, the, the exception is I do block like giant lists of folks who are on these turf lists where yeah. you can, you know, any of the trans exclusionary route ra- radical feminists, like oh, no. I block those because I'm really not interested in that kind of um Content at all, and I know I could mute, yeah. but for whatever reason, it just feels more victorious to just
1: flock. So I do. I, mean, um, I feel good and I social media
0: to be positive.
1: I do. I'll just be honest with you. Like you, you sound very high minded about it, and I, I envy, <laughs> I envy your open mindedness. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just indiscriminate at this point. You know, I think <laughs> I've hit like I'm close to 300 muted words. You know, almost 100 blocked accounts. Like I just. I just don't care to know any more about those subjects, you know. I think I, that's good, though. I just I don't foresee any any turf ever changing my mind about anything, so I don't need it in my life. And there are certain other things too. It's like I'm not interested in seeing both sides of white supremacy. I don't right. want that shit on my timeline, you know. <laughs> no, I hear I, you. I don't care to see it. Um, you know, there are just some things that I just don't need in my life um, and I, I'm lucky to have a close circle of friends who I trust to like call me on my bullshit and talk to me about certain subjects and people who I really lean on um, when I'm trying to educate myself but you know I don't need that to be a public education <laughs> like I don't need 200 I totally people telling you. me I'm an idiot I know I'm an idiot <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay. yeah I, I've been there
0: my friend I've been there right um, it is you know it it is the downside of social media and um yeah it's both an upside and a downside i, I also prefer that my education be more private than public um mm-hmm. but i i definitely have gained more from social media than i've lost in terms of uh expanding perspectives and things. I do get exhausted by it sometimes, but yeah. um, but I imagine I exhausted in return periodically. So it's <laughs> kind of like karmically balances out. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to talk to you about your experiences with healthcare professionals. Like you mm. you carry many identities with you and they are identities that um, many of them carry with it strength, but they also carry with them Sigma in lots of different ways. Um, Talk to me about interactions with healthcare professionals.
1: I mean, they've been varied. Um, And I I do want to just call out that, you know, I am white. I'm in a very white city. I'm very cute. (laughs) You are very cute. You're super cute. (laughs) Thank you for affirming that. I feel (laughs) seen. But it's true, you know, and as a, you know, as a white, you know, standard issue, attractive, you know, relatively thin, sort of androgynous person who's, you know, educated and is very, you know, I'm fluent in white people. Um, You know, also my father was a hospital administrator uh, for Navy medicine for his entire career. And so I'm very, very well acquainted with the healthcare system, you know, as a civilian. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like those things give me real advantages when I'm interacting with a with a healthcare provider, even as a trans person. Um, so I think that those things really do work in my favor. And so my experience might be different than someone who doesn't have those advantages. Um, it's been interesting in my transition. Um, I'm doing an event, my second event with Cheryl Strayed, for Planned Parenthood. Um, I'm supporting them for a fundraiser um, here in Oregon next month. And I'm speaking about my experience as a trans person and the number of spaces in which I feel seen and understood physically and psychologically, I could count on one hand. Wow. One hand, yeah one of those places is Planned Parenthood. Um, I feel very fortunate to be someone who has insurance, um, who, you know, I I lucked into a a healthcare provider. My primary care provider is a cis white gay man who is, you you know, young and fairly savvy and has a great sense of humor. He's the person who assisted me in getting on testosterone. He referred me to a surgeon who did my top surgery, who was wonderful, although definitely not like a trans rights person. Um, Aesthetically, I got what I needed. I just feel like my experiences in healthcare, I feel like it is essential for me to have a connection to other trans people who are going through the same thing we educate each other much more than i have ever been educated by a, by a healthcare provider you know i really am the expert on my body and even if i don't have a language for that or i don't necessarily understand the whole you know st- the systems around that or like what my options are within the flowchart of healthcare um, I do know what I need, and my experience after coming out is that my body, you know, because I, I, feel, I feel really uplifted when I think about how many providers, you know, are so focused on women's rights, mm-hmm. you know, especially women's reproductive rights, you know, I, when I was living as a woman, I felt empowered when I was in the doctor's office, I felt heard, um, I had providers who were very sympathetic When I came out and entered this other system, you know, trans healthcare really is a separate system. Mm -hmm. And when I, when I went through that door, even, you know, even though I was unsure and, you know, even though I didn't feel a lot of support, I did go through that door and I felt like even in the doctor's office, I was a novelty and my provider didn't know more than I did. Um, there's so little research and so little, you know, so little understanding of my population that um, that I really do get better care in places that serve, you know, lower income people or, or have, um, you know, zero barrier healthcare like Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. You know, in a in a you know and quote unquote nice doctor's office. Um, you know, I'm going to be sitting across from somebody who is assessing me purely on a physical level. You know, they want to do a pap smear and they may not be able to talk to a trans person about doing a pap smear. They're, to them, they're just doing the procedure, right? Mm-hmm. They don't know about all of the other stuff, the language or the care needs that surround that particular procedure for me. So while the mechanics may be the same to the provider, the actual procedure and the, the care that's being given is a, is a totally different thing. Um, a couple months ago, I read this wonderful book that I highly recommend that is by this guy who is a professional ventriloquist Ooh. <laughs> and he's a, he's a primary care provider. Uh, he was on like America's got talent or something like that. <laughs> I'm
0: intrigued already. You had me with professional ventriloquists. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Yeah.
1: Um, he's really something. He wrote a book about how to improve your patient outcomes as a doctor using the principles of performance. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So he talked about like, you know, like, um, when you're a doctor, like what you wear is very important. Like they need to see the stethoscope. They need to see the white jacket. They need to see that you are composed, right? Oh, interesting. It's like you need to plan it like you're going on stage. You know, you enter the room and from the minute you're in there, you need to convince your audience that you know what you're doing. <laughs> and you need to make them feel a particular way. And the the principles of acting that he explained are very simple. They're very straightforward. I think anybody could do them. He had a couple of, you know, really basic nuts and bolts, things like, you know, for every for every patient, you schedule half an hour. Not 15 minutes, you schedule half an hour for every single patient that you have.
0: I found the guy's name, Bob Baker.
1: Bob Baker. Yeah, that's him. It's a fantastic book. It's fantastic. He's uh, he's He's also very fun to read. You know, this is not a dry this is not a dry tome. I think it should be required reading. But, you know, in terms of, of treating um, trans people, you know, I think, I think I did sense that I was suddenly a novelty and, you know, sort of a, you know, the, the feeling that I never enjoy having but that I have frequently is that I'm a sideshow attraction, that I'm, you know, the token diversity or I'm, you know, sort of the model. I want to say model minority, but that's not quite the right term. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a nod to the, the T in the LGBTQ spectrum. And, um, I don't like that feeling. I tolerate it because I think that everybody gets to learn and not everybody has interacted with someone like me before. So I cut people a lot of slack, but there are a couple of places where I don't ever want to feel that way. And one of them is in my doctor's office.
0: Well, and you shouldn't have to be someone's teachable moment. And, you know, I do know that, yes, a lot of clinicians have not interacted with someone who's trans or non-binary before. That's unacceptable. That should be part of, no Mm -hmm. one should be graduating from med school or nursing school without having interacted with someone who's trans and someone who's non-binary. And I think that's, that's why so many folks end up feeling like they are their clinician's teachable moment, because it's the first time anyone's teaching them.
1: Well, and you won't retain those patients, period. Um, I gave a talk at uh, OHSU, which is the um, medical school here. I got to talk to a group of uh, psychiatry residents, about a dozen students who were doing their residency in psychiatry at the school. And um, first of all, there was one queer person in the room other than me. Wow. Yep. And my opener when I do these sorts of trainings or talks is I ask uh if anybody has a trans patient, raise your hand. There was one hand. It was oh. the queer, it was the queer students oh, patient. No. <laughs> and I said, okay, and how many of you have a trans person in your life? You know, a friend, a roommate, a neighbor, family member, you know, partner, whatever. No hands.
0: Wow. I'm
1: like these are the people who are supposed to make a trans person feel comfortable you know, in mental health care, Mm. dream the fuck on.
0: Yeah. Because if someone has, has never even met or doesn't, or doesn't know that they've met, you know, a trans person or is not, doesn't have someone in their life who's trans. How are you going to know?
1: I mean, to people like that, as well-meaning as they may be to them, it's just, it's pronouns. Mm -hmm. And that's what, that's what they end up asking about. Well, what about pronouns? (sighs) I don't give a shit about your pronouns.
0: Everyone's obsessed about the pronouns. It's like, oh my God.
1: (laughs) Like, As a trans person, like I have such a finely tuned radar for whether or not somebody knows how to talk to me. Mm -hmm. I can tell, like I can tell from the moment they see me or speak to me, hear my voice. Like I can tell whether or not they know what to do. And I don't like that feeling. Um, it's, it's a lot of pressure and it makes me feel like an alien. Hmm. And I don't enjoy that feeling. Um, when I was on my book tour for Shine of the Ever uh, last year, I did I did 10, I think it was 10 cities, 10 independent bookstores, 10 cities. It was wonderful. And I had some very big audiences and I had some very small audiences. But one of the things that consistently people said to me when they came up to buy my book or shake my hand is I've never met a trans person in person before. You know, when I'm shaking their hand, I'm aware that they have never touched a trans person before. They may That's have seen one on astonishing. TV. Astonishing. I know. I feel like a fucking sideshow. How is oh, that supposed to make me feel? Step no. right up, and see the see the non-binary trans from wow. Portland. Like they may love my work and they may like me, but the feeling of being exceptional is not pleasant. No,
0: you know, I've, I've been, I kind of hammer away at this on social media all the time and it's not a popular view, but I really want to get rid of guest panels in med school and nursing school for LGBTQ populations, because on average, med school and nursing school has around two hours of content on LGBTQ issues in general. And Mm -hmm. most of that is accomplished through panels. And I, I, I have, as a member of panels, heard those panels referred to by people in the community as freak of the week panels.
1: Oh my God. Um,
0: because people in our, within the LGBTQ community, when you've done enough of those panels, you know that you're like, you're it, right? You're the only person that these yep. students will have interacted with. And you're there, you answer all of the wacky questions you get, and that's all the content they get. And yeah. I think a lot of times professors just they take the easy way out it's easier to invite a guest in to talk about this than it is to actually care enough about the content to teach students about this um and guest speakers should be an add-on it should be in addition it shouldn't be all of it because it feels crappy being that person on the panel
1: it does and you know i think you can probably attest to this, but the people on those panels tend to be the same faces and voices oh. every time. You know, I don't yeah. need you know, you mentioned uh is it two hours of yeah. trans related care? Okay, I think I think they get about the same amount uh for substance use disorder and addiction. Hmm. Okay.
0: <laughs> which is well and which is shocking because when you look at substance use disorder just across populations. I mean, it's almost like if you only gave people two hours of content on cardiology, like yep. it's it's a prevalent issue and concern yep. that affects all communities. And so there needs to be a lot more content.
1: Yeah, but they don't know anything about it. And then, you know, you end up with just like with trans trans healthcare, you end up with um, a bunch of white faces, mm-hmm. you know, a bunch of, you know, primarily masculine or traditionally you know, traditionally beautiful androgynous people, mm-hmm. um, people who are educated, people, you know, those, those layers of privilege come out really strongly. And I just don't feel that that does the provider a service when their only interaction is with, you know, a quote, model member, right? or A, a non marginalized member of that particular population,
0: right? Well, and the way that those guest presentations are set up,
1: you mm-hmm. know, people
0: aren't paid. And they need to take time off work to come in and speak and so who do you end up with you end up with people with privilege who can go yeah people have time and people have the financial resources to take time off of work um to go be on a panel Mm -hmm. you know as i think about healthcare you're you're looking at it from so many different lenses when you walk into a room with a new clinician How does that all balance out in your head? Like, is your trans non-binary self more on guard? Is your person in recovery aspect of yourself more on guard? Like, which piece, which lens is is up in the form of a wall the most based on negative
1: experiences in the past?
0: I'm doing a very bad job of articulating this question.
1: I get what you're saying. Um, It, you know, again, I think it's it's an immense help and a privilege to have. A long-term relationship with a healthcare provider. Mm-hmm. So I've been seeing my current primary care provider for over two years. I also see a therapist who I've seen for over a decade. I feel very, very lucky. She's been so um, responsive to me, um, so adaptable, especially around like payment and scheduling. Like it's it's been a real a real uh, pleasure to grow up with her. It means a lot. Um, whenever I go into a medical office, especially if it's a provider who doesn't already know me and hasn't seen my chart, I understand that first of all, they are probably someone who has an issue with substances themselves. Statistically speaking, healthcare providers have high rates of addiction. It's just, it's more prevalent in that population. And because of the stigma, it is not addressed. The other thing is that because doctors and other providers are still normal people, whether they believe it or not, (laughs) um, they are probably complete idiots about trans healthcare. Like they're just like anybody else. They probably haven't seen someone like me. They probably haven't talked to someone like me. And although I don't like being, I don't like feeling like the exception, I know that my experience is exceptional because trans people have one of the highest Rates of addiction and overdose death in the United States. We also have the smallest access to those life-saving resources because many of them are based on binary sex. There is a lot of um, a lot of exclusion and discrimination, and that kills people. So, you know, I can tell you that there is exactly one, only one program in the United States that is a rehab treatment program that is for trans people. There is one, it is called Morris House, it is in Philadelphia, one. If you want housing, if you want medication assisted treatment, if you want um, you know, even a home group or some sort of recovery meeting that works for you, all of that is word of mouth, all of it. You will have to find it yourself. And if you are in a crisis, if you are frightened, if you are um, maybe an abuse survivor or a rape survivor, You have other issues, your chances shrink. And I have never met a healthcare professional, even one who cared about me, who understood that for me, being in recovery for more than a decade, and also being an out, proud, you know, visibly trans, (laughs) Uh, you know, very, very happy, loving myself, you know, safe, happy, self-supporting, um, they're in the presence of a unicorn, and none of them has ever acknowledged the amount of luck, privilege, or work it has taken for me to become this person. Not one. They don't know what they're looking at. And I, I would hope that, you know, if, if any providers are listening to this, that taking a moment to acknowledge the, the fortitude, and the toughness and the resourcefulness it takes for a trans person mm-hmm. to navigate a system that is not designed for us and ask for help or trust a provider enough to say i have an issue or i want to talk about my drinking or you know i have you know recurring panic attacks that are linked to my ptsd and i you know i'm on estrogen what is Zoloft going to do to my estrogen levels? You need to have the answers to those questions.
0: You know, as you're talking, I, I, I cannot even imagine how shitty it would feel to not have a clinician acknowledge that, you know, that that when you walk into the office, the fact that you are alive is a big deal, given that so many trans folks and folks with substance use disorders aren't aren't here. Like, don't make it.
1: Yep. And I mean, bear in mind that, and maybe this is a little unfair, but this is kind of the nature of the thing, is that if you are a provider and you fuck up, or you say something damaging, or you come off as ignorant or unhelpful, the rest of the community will hear about it. Like, if you're a provider and you're not seeing trans patients, maybe look at the interactions you've had with my community and say, well is this did i fuck up you know is there something that i could do to make my office more welcoming because you know we we talk um, the surgeon who did my top surgery for example is not a trans specific like healthcare provider you know she's fantastic um, i remember she had a big old big old like prada bag <laughs> you know she <laughs> she drives a porsche she clearly knows what she's doing <laughs> she's, a, she's doing fine for herself She's in aesthetics medicine. You know, she does boob jobs and fucking, you know, chin lifts. And on the side, she does top surgeries. So, you know, being in her office, I didn't feel especially acknowledged. Um, you know, we looked at pictures of Ryan Gosling with his shirt off and talked about my like chest goals and then we giggled with each other and like it was cute, but I'm also like this woman doesn't know what the fuck she's doing. <laughs>
0: I was going to say, it does not sound like the most trans-affirming no, kind of experience. It was
1: not. And I'm like, well, I'm going to be asleep for the entire three and a half hours of the surgery, so it doesn't matter. you know. <laughs> like, I don't need her talking me through this or holding my hand or any of that stuff. I know that she's going to do a great job, and she did. And I was willing to go through the other stuff in order to get that. But not everybody is going to be willing to do that.
0: Well, and you were seeking technical expertise, yes. but you shouldn't have to choose no. between technical expertise and the ability to provide trans-inclusive and trans-affirming care. Correct. You should be able to get both.
1: Well, and I think I think that's a subtle distinction. You know, trans-inclusive and trans-affirming are two very different, right? It's like she was trans-inclusive in that there were no weird questions or, you know, I wasn't treated like a freak. Um, you know, she gave me what I wanted. Um, was it affirming? Eh, Kind of. I think it was affirming because I had already given myself the support that I needed to go through that process.
0: Yeah, but showing you Ryan Gosling photos, I mean, Mm -hmm. this is just my take, completely uninformed, right? (laughs) My uninformed take is that uh, it's probably not realistic for anyone, regardless of gender identity, to have Ryan Gosling's Pecs as any <laughs> kind of aspirational goal, right? Like that doesn't. And the, I mean, he's fabulous, but sure. like, is that a reasonable? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Like, so years ago, I had a prophylactic bilateral mastectomy, mm-hmm. so not top surgery for for trans reasons, but essentially no boobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I went through that process. I remember trying to find images of what it would look like. Yes, because I wanted to have a totally flat chest, and most most providers want to leave skin because they're convinced you'll change your mind. Really? Just like yeah, oh, yeah, Rude. a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I had to go through so much. Like the surgeon asked me multiple times. She was like. You need to make sure because I'm afraid you're going to regret this. And I'm like, look, I want to be able to like bounce a penny off of it. I do not. I don't want any flabby skin left. Just make it tight (laughs) because I'm not going to regret this. I'm going to do it myself. Um, I swear to God. (laughs) Exactly. So, but I remember looking for pictures of what it would look like. Um, And for me, it was, and again, I'm not trans, Mm -hmm. but it was affirming for me to see pictures of real, actual humans Mm -hmm. who are not celebrities who have had the surgery I'm going to have. And I could say, yeah, that looks like that. Yeah, I would be okay with that, that outcome versus Ryan Gosling, Mm -hmm. who no amount of surgery. I mean, (laughs) I don't know what you look like without your shirt on. Maybe you look like Ryan Gosling, which kudos to you if you do. But it seems like that's a high bar. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) But it doesn't seem like a high bar versus seeing Mm -hmm. folks who've had a surgery. Mm -hmm. I would think it would be affirming to see trans folks who've had surgeries and to be able to get a sense about what you're looking for based on that. I don't know. Am I wrong? Maybe I'm wrong. It's okay to tell me I'm wrong.
1: you are wrong. Um, You know, it does point, however, to me, to how uncommon it is for trans people to see each other naked in a non-sexual context. Interesting. Um, If you Google, you know, nude trans body, you may come up with a couple of, like, artistic photo shoots, but the rest is porn. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, the body of a sex worker or a performer, you know, someone whose job is to look a particular way, like in my mind, that's not that different from Ryan Gosling.
0: Right. I agree.
1: Like there's a great diversity of of body type, um, you know, in there's as many types of trans people as there are any other kind of people. Absolutely. So it's interesting. It's interesting that the beauty standard is still applied, you know, being able to see like I, I could not tell you the first time. Oh, I, yes, I can. Okay, the first time I ever saw another trans person who'd had top surgery, topless in public, was at a trans rights march in 2018 in Portland, Oregon. It was the only time in my life when I've been around that many other trans people. And it, you know, it changes things. I think that, you know, like you said, the mastectomy is a little different for a number of reasons, but also like that type of surgery because yeah, I, I definitely googled those photos also when I was considering um, considering my own surgery. and I noticed that you know the the topless photos of trans people were very clinical. you yeah. know, usually on someone's website where they're like this is the keyhole surgery and this is the anchor surgery like all the different names and there's so many different types and body types. But they were very clinical. It was usually a very harsh, um, high-resolution photo with a white background. You know, the scars and the coloration was very intense. There's no face. It's just a chest. And I noticed, and one of the things I love about um, post-mastectomy photos is how beautiful they are. You know, there's gorgeous tattoos and like women who are like loving their chests. And you know, there's um, one woman who, who had her whole torso painted. You know, like beautiful, elegant, um, artistic images of the whole, you see the whole person, you see her arms and her face, you see the shaved head, um, you see her back. Sometimes women were posing um, with their partners in different ways. And that was just gorgeous. And I'm like, how come we don't have this for trans people? And We hear the same messages that you hear. Oh, you'll regret it. What would your husband say? What are you going to wear? You can't wear anything if you do that to your body. Nobody will think you're sexy.
0: So I think it goes to that idea of the beauty standard, that um, there is one way that people should look. And then for trans folks, I mean, the the comment you made about that beauty standard still applying, isn't it interesting that we're trying to think beyond the binary, but healthcare is still seeing the trans body within not just the binary, Mm -hmm. but within the binary of mm-hmm. contemporary beauty standards of what it means to, you
1: know, what our bodies have to look yeah. like. Yeah. And again, you know, I think it, it puts a lot of pressure on the person receiving care to have the language for that. You know, I think you and I mm-hmm. are fully equipped with that language for the most part, <laughs> Right. for different reasons. I just think that, um, you know, I think I, I just don't think everybody wants to look cis. And that's really what it comes right. down to is, you know, to the provi- to, to the mind of many providers, it's the idea that in order to heal this person or support this person, part of what I'm doing is helping them adapt or assimilate into the heteronormative culture that we live in.
0: Right. Passing becomes the clinician's exactly. goal for that patient. Whether
1: they realize it or not. I'm helping you pass. I'm helping you pass as someone, you know, um, you know, someone who seems normal, whatever normal means, or someone who looks healthy, or someone who fits in, because that's part of your mental wellness. Like whatever the whatever the logic is around that, it really overlooks the fact that, you know, for me anyway, I don't want to look cis. I don't seek to pass. I don't enjoy looking. Um, like a CIS man, like there's literally no perks that come with that, Uh, (laughs) it's true. (laughs) You know, I I don't want to look like anything other than what I am. And um, I've been really resistant to healthcare providers' suggestions that, you know, maybe I should do this a little differently or that a little differently. It's like, no, I don't want that. I don't want that. Um, I want to be in control of my image. And I want to be in control of my body because whether I like it or not, the trans body is a symbol and whoever gets to define and interpret that symbol has the power. That power should be mine.
0: Have you noticed differences, and and I say from before, from the before time, (laughs) in terms of the kinds of questions clinicians ask? And I'll tell you why I'm asking this so that you know why, because if I'm off base, you can totally say it. So in all of my years of being alive, nobody has ever taken a sexual history on me. Nobody, right? Really? At all. Like, oh no, no one ever takes a sexual history on me. And
1: oh, why not? Oh yeah,
0: never, 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 never. Um, and then when I got when and then when Kathy and I got married, I would say I'm married, and people would ask, "What does your husband do?" And I would say, "Oh, it's a woman." And then I, then there were no follow up questions, so I didn't even get. I, I continue to not get any sexual history questions.
1: Or they scared? I don't know. <laughs> you know.
0: I look like so terribly vanilla that people think like, ah, she's not doing anything. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So I'm curious, have you seen changes in that? Are people asking you oh. more questions now that you identify as trans or non-binary or is it really unaffected? Um, I'm just, I'm, maybe it's just me. Maybe no clinician thinks I'm a sexual being, in which case that's a separate podcast.
1: <laughs> that is a separate podcast. <laughs> also, they're wrong. Also, that's kind of <laughs> God, um, I do remember, um, you know, I'm sexually fluid. You know, I I like people <laughs> and people like me. And that's really all there to say about it. And it works. It's, it's fuck man, it works for me. <laughs> um, I do remember... If I ever went to a doctor's office and told them that I only slept with women, cis women, and that I only, you know, that I didn't, if I left men off the table, I had a very similar experience to you.
0: Interesting.
1: Where they assumed, you know, they assumed a lower rate of STIs. Mm -hmm. Um, I think they assumed less sexual adventurousness. It's like, are you in a relationship? Is it with a girl? Okay, I'm going to go ahead and assume lesbian bed death. Oh um, my God. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there was the same assumption. And, you know, once I told them, oh, I, I have a child, I have a son, or I slept with a man this year, or, you know, what if I shared different aspects of my sexual history or even my sexual preference, you know, because I do sleep with men. Um, but I don't identify as someone who would do that habitually, if that makes sense. It does. It makes total sense. You know, I'm just sort of a free range pervert. So <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So, you know, once, once the, once like quote unquote lesbianism was off the table, suddenly it became a little more, I felt like I lost my agency, if that makes sense. Um, I can remember I had a scare, um, I had a cervical cancer scare a couple of years ago. Um, this was definitely in the before times. I, w- I think I was 27. So it was almost 10 years ago. Jeez. You know, my my son hadn't started kindergarten yet. And I'm like, fuck, man, I don't want to have cervical cancer. I want to live. So I went to this doctor that was, you know, he was so cute. He was this handsome little short dude with an MD. I checked out his website. I'm like, wow, this guy does vaginoplasties. He's weird. <laughs> one of those, like, you know, a facelift for your pussy kind of guys. Uh, but he was in my network and he came highly recommended. And I went um, and he was going to do my, um, you know, my, the operation on my cervix. And um, we talked, you know, he did the, he did an uh, exam and we, we talked in, in the office and he, he found out that I had a child already. And I said, you know, what are my options with this? Basically, He's like, are you not concerned it would affect your fertility? And I'm like, no, I only date women. What's what's the issue? And he's like, you'll change your mind. <gasps> yeah.
0: Whoa. You'll change your
1: mind. I'm like, sir, you just had both gloved hands inside my cavity. <laughs> How dare you? Wow. <laughs> it was the first time that that had happened to me. And I'd heard about it happening to my female friends, you know, like women who wanted to, um, you know, get an IUD or get a hysterectomy before 50 or something like that. The doctor would say, oh, you're too young. You'll change your mind. What does your husband think? This is the first time somebody had said that to me. And I will tell you that those conversations and those statements stopped when I came out as trans. I think that's for two reasons. First of all, I think there is such a taboo around transgender people and pleasure mm-hmm. that I think that most, you know, cisgender heterosexual people simply don't want to imagine it. You know, I've never had a doctor ask me, how do you fuck? Or who do you fuck? They don't ask. And I think the flip side of that is this idea that as a trans person, you're sort of neutered, like you're a eunuch. Oh. Where, you know, if you're not attractive to that particular cis person, then you must not be sexually interesting to anybody at all. So it's that sort of Madonna whore complex And so, you know, you you follow me on social media, like a lot of the stuff I do is deliberately to celebrate my body. You know, I think I'm hot. I love your tweets.
0: I absolutely love
1: your tweets. (laughs) I just think that trans people are really hot and we should be celebrated. So I do that and I try to bring that into my doctor's office. Um, You know, I'm honest about who I sleep with and, you know, specifically what we do. I mean, I don't need to tell you that like there are many sexual acts that involve fluid exchange, but not penetration. Right? Um, You know, like what if you're, what if you're cutting each other? Mm -hmm. What if you're, you know, doing water sports? What if you're, you know, there's all kinds of stuff where there's, it's almost like no contact, but you're still, you know, there's still some risk for sexually transmitted infection. You know, the person who is seeing me in the office I think is allowed to ask respectful questions about like what types of sex are you engaging
0: in? But but how often do they? I mean, that's the piece that I I get so frustrated about. You know, I when clinicians are interviewing someone who's whose identity is heterosexual mm-hmm. and they're cisgender mm-hmm. and they say they're married, yeah, um, there is an assumption about
1: monogamy. Who that person yeah, there's this option of monogamy. And so right.
0: And so I, I try to say over and over and over again, like, okay, yes, you're saying if someone identifies, yeah. you know, you're going based on someone's identity. How many people, mm-hmm. you know, do you know someone who identified as married but had sex with someone else? Yeah. Yes. So identity has nothing to do with behavior. Mm-hmm. And we have to we have to recognize that and also yeah. recognize that a growing number of people do not see monogamy as the standard. to which they aspire, and they recognize Mm -hmm. a much more fluid definition of what uh, relational happiness looks like. And so we have to be willing to ask questions in a non-judgmental way.
1: I agree. I mean, I know plenty of, you know, quote unquote, monogamous people who still say, go to strip clubs and, you know, solicit sex workers or, you know, know, have sexual experiences outside of their marriage. They don't think of themselves as non-monogamous.
0: No. And you know, when I think about like married couples, how many married couples are are having anal sex? And how seldom are healthcare professionals asking about Mm -hmm. those behaviors and talking about things like anal pap Uh for STDs? Like, that's not that's not happening to the extent it needs to, I think, because of the taboo around sex in general, like we're, Mm -hmm. as a culture, just completely oogied out by people being sexual. (laughs) Now, you mentioned being a parent. Yes. Um, How, when you look at your role as a parent, what insights have you gleaned about your interactions as a parent with the healthcare system?
1: I'm very upfront with my providers about uh, the fact that I had a miscarriage when I was in college and that my son is my only child and that he was conceived (laughs) in a marriage to a cis man when I was very young. Um, I think it's sort of the same thing where there's so many assumptions around trans people and our bodies and what they do and whether or not they function like a cis body that when someone finds out I'm trans, whether they're a provider or not, they just assume that I'm you know single, um, you know never been married, never gonna get married, doesn't have children, never gonna have children, you know, it's a common myth that if you're on testosterone, you can't get pregnant, um, that you can't conceive or carry a baby to term, you know, people are just, there's just ignorant. And I think that that comes from the deeply rooted stigma of being transgender, which is like I said, you know, you're either, you know, sort of a sexual sock puppet on one hand, or you're, you know, a complete celibate on the other. Um, you know, you're a, you're a whore who doesn't have sex. So, you know, for me, um, talking about my reproductive history, especially the fact that I am, you know, a single parent, I'm raising my son, um, who is cis or seems to be, uh, (laughs) you know, it comes with its own challenges. Um, I think that, I think that, like you said, you know, identity is not a predictor of behavior. And I think Mm -hmm. appearance is not a predictor of identity. So, you know, when someone, I remember going to, um, I was getting my annual exam and the provider who didn't know me took one look at my cervix, you know, my battle-hardened cervix. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've put some really good miles on that thing. <laughs> I'm proud of it. <laughs> Newer model, high mileage. Uh took one look and was like, oh, you have these um, really unusual marks on your cervix. And I'm like, marks, what do you mean? She's like, wow, this is the kind of thing you see, you know, on someone who's had a vaginal delivery. And I'm like, "Uh huh, <laughs> yeah, you're, wow. you're almost there. You're so close. <laughs> so it wasn't even on their radar of a possibility. They didn't even ask me. Like they, they didn't even look at the sheet. You know, I think most people at this point, I mean, w- when I have my mask on for COVID, like, I think I do look more um, like an effeminate cis man, but without the mask on, I've had a lot of people read me as like a super butch lesbian. Which Interesting. Is, it's different. Um, I mean, I don't mind because lesbians are rad. Um, <laughs>
0: not, I would I not read you as, I would not read you. I mean, I again, I haven't met you in person, person, but- I've seen lots of your pictures on Twitter and Uh I would never read you as a butch lesbian. I, you very much read as if this, this will sound weird. You read (laughs) as someone who is your own gender. Uh, If that makes sense. Like you don't, to me, I would not read you as butch lesbian or as a feminine cis man, like Mm. your foster. And I'm not saying I don't see gender. You're in this liminal space between masculine and feminine. That is, I think
1: kind of amazing. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Um, I definitely I've been told that as long as I don't, you know, move, speak, get excited, <laughs> dress myself, <laughs> you know, like dance while you're I, sleeping. Yeah, exactly. It's like if you hold. I if you hold perfectly still and keep your hands in your pockets and don't move your face. Oh my god. You might, you might get by. But you know, <laughs> as as earlier in my transition, I certainly got read as a as a super butch woman. Um, which I think made people believe that maybe I wouldn't be the type to want to have a baby, which is also a disservice to butch lesbians because, you know, some of the best moms I know are butch lesbians. Absolutely. Hands down. Like they're ready. (laughs) They're ready to (laughs) raise this child. (laughs) Um, so it's just weird. I think, um, I think that people read masculinity as something that's not nurturing or something that's not sweet. Um, I don't love the word tender, but I think that that kind of applies in this circumstance, you know, is that only someone who has quote unquote feminine appearance or um, attributes is going to be a good parent. And um, that's not that's not true. Which is so all. not true.
0: Like it's so not, not true.
1: It's not, but it, it makes me wonder, you know, what cultural values have we internalized that are making us kind of, you know, read one another um for that for that particular behavior. You know, there's the that famous study about like the hip to wit- the hip to waist ratio for women. <laughs> Remember that one? Yes. Like Marilyn Monroe had it and like yeah. Who's the other? Kate Moss had it. Like all this magic fucking hip-to-waist ratio that somehow triggers an alarm bell in a man's brain that is like, I will breed with her. She has the right ratio. And I'm like, God damn, that sounds like some bullshit to me. But it makes me wonder like, how many of those like golden ratios or those imaginary numbers do we have in our minds? Like, am I like when I look at a crowd of you know, women, if I, if I go to a sorority party, for example, um, however, I'm able to get in the door and I look around at these like near identical cis heterosexual women with blonde highlights all in the same place, you know, who do the same workout routines, eat the same diet, sleep on identical mattresses in the same fucking house. Like, how can I pick out like who is the most fertile in that room? You know, right. which one of these is going to be my gal? Like I I have no idea, but I'm positive that if I was in that in that situation that I would still single one out as the most likely. And I have no idea how I would make those decisions. Isn't that wild?
0: That's wild. Yes.
1: yes. Wow. It's That's bizarre. So cool.
0: But you know what <laughs> though? I mean, the whole thing about who we're attracted to anyway is a mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm always fascinated talking with folks who have gone through some kind of transition, whether it is gender, whether it is uh, some kind of life transition where who they're attracted to has changed. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think particularly when it comes to trans folks, this idea that someone who they may be attracted to after transition, if that changes, um, it in no way invalidates the fact that they're mm-hmm. trans, right? Yeah, so it's totally. it's fascinating to me as you know I read things and people will talk about well someone's sexual orientation shifted mm-hmm. and so you know were they not trans? No, they they were trans and mm-hmm. sexual orientation can be fluid and it can mm-hmm. change. I, I yeah, I humans this. are complex and wild creatures. We are. I don't know that my appearance
1: change. Hmm. I have to think about that one.
0: <laughs> well, and and I think. I mean, this is just me. I think over time, over our lifetimes, um, orientation can be fluid. My so when Kathy was alive, she used to joke that if I unfriended every guy I had sex with on Facebook, <laughs> I would be left with six friends, and that wow. was her favorite joke. Was really because I dated only guys in high school and college and I dated all the guys in high school and college um, and so we <laughs> and so she would joke she, but I was I, but I've remained friends with all of these guys and they're lovely people and I am <laughs> like they're, they're good people right and But the number of people who say to me now, so I am a lesbian, I Mm -hmm. have, you know, I I say I date exclusively women. I was married to one woman for almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. I have dated women exclusively for all this time. But then when people ask me, oh, so were you faking it back? No, I, I was genuinely attracted to those guys. Like, no, there's... No, it's okay. Like things can shift over time. And I think we're so much more comfortable as a society putting people mm-hmm. in one box. Yes. And this idea that you may have like moved along, you, you may be jumping from box to box. I had a great time jumping from box to box. It worked for me. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so I, I'm just, I'm fascinated by the fluidity of all of this across our lifetimes, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of whether there's a transition or not. This was so much fun, Foster. I'm so glad you came on the show. Thank you for having me. And um, tell listeners your Twitter handle, if you're comfortable doing so, and also um, your website so that they can learn more about Shine of the Ever and buy a copy and then leave a review on Amazon. Because I see you have lots of reviews on Amazon and I had total book review envy, I have to tell you. Because (laughs) everyone's like, everyone loves your book. It's amazing. It's a fabulous book.
1: Well, thank you so much. Uh, People can find me and my work at clairerudyfoster.com, or you can find me on Twitter at my initials, C-R-F underscore P-D-X, which is short for Portland. And I so appreciate your support. And thank you for a wonderful interview.
0: Oh, thanks so much.
1: Take care. You've been
0: listening to M- the healthcare podcast that gives you pause. For more information about the podcast, visit www.em-podcast.com.